First Corinthians chapter one. Uh, one of the reasons, uh, there are many reasons why we walk verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book uh, through Scripture on Sunday here as opposed to uh, working topically all the time. There's a time and place for topical preaching, but Scripture was, uh, one reason we do it is Scripture was intended to be read and studied in this way. God did not lay out Scripture like an encyclopedia, topic by topic, but rather letter by letter, book by book to cover various things. And so um, this the way. God intended us to read and to study. But another reason that we do it this way is that it allows us and at times forces us to cover topics and texts that we might otherwise be tempted to avoid or not really cover uh, because they're hard, because they're challenging, uh, or frankly, because sometimes they hurt. Uh, Today, feels like one of those texts in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Because church splits are the history of most churches. Sadly, if a church exists long enough, it will most likely endure a split. And while it may seem like it in the moment, these Splits don't appear out of thin air. It's not just that something bubbled up one day and it just happened, but rather they're the result of of months, years, and sometimes even decades of subtle divisions that take place in the body of Christ. And unfortunately, these splits leave the church broken and Christians scarred. Satan recognized early that the fastest way to hinder and discredit the gospel was to divide the church. And as a result, almost from its inception, Satan sought to split the church. In fact, the office of deacon exists because in Acts 6, the church was arguing and ready to split over the way that widows were being served. Uh, Paul wrote the letter to the Philippians due to a division that was taking place between two women in the church, Yodia and Syntyche. They were dividing the church into camps. In in his 12th uh, chapter to the Romans, Paul challenges the Roman church to be united and to humble themselves, to stop making church about them and rather serve the body. So how can a church avoid repeating that? How can we as a church, frankly, avoid repeating our own history? How can we develop and maintain and proclaim a proper biblical unity? How can we keep Satan from once again ripping this church body apart? Well, as Paul begins the exhortation portion of this epistle, we discover that the Corinthian church was actually on the verge of experiencing a church split themselves. And as a result, Paul encourages them with three steps that they needed to take as a church to avoid that catastrophe and to join together in unity. Today, we're going to look at verses 10 through 17 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Read along, uh, follow along as I read. 1 Corinthians 1, 10 to 17. Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, 
but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus, and beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. As we read this text, we discover that the church had splintered into several uh, competing groups. Groups that just couldn't get along. None of them agreed with the other. All of them thought they were right. Arrogance ruled the day. And as a result, they were about to split the church. Yet as we look at the situation the church in, in Corinth found itself, we also must be cautious because many of the same attitudes the Corinthians displayed, frankly, we struggle with here at Cambria. We must also guard against these attitudes if we want to avoid repeating history. So what are these three steps that we must take in order to avoid this? Three steps the church must take to be united under the gospel. The first step we find in verse 10. We must remember who binds the church together. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That you all agree with one another and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. He says, I appeal to you, I exhort you, I beg you, I entreat you, don't be divided. The word divided is the word schism. Don't have schisms and splits in your body. As we'll note later, these schisms were not over vital theological issues. It was not that someone was, was teaching heresy or espousing heresy. The deity of Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection. Rather, these divisions were over personal opinions. And so he tells them, remember who binds the church together. To do that, we must first submit to Christ's authority. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Immediately, Paul appeals to the name of Christ. The church represents Christ and is therefore responsible for Christ's reputation. He's appealing to them because everything we know about Christ his person, his character, his attributes, and his work points to the truth of this appeal for unity. You see, my reputation is not important. And your reputation is not important. Christ's reputation is important. We must remember that this 
church is not about us. Worship is not about us. The problem is we are just arrogant enough that we think it is. We think the church belongs to us. This is my church. But there's only one person who has purchased and owns this church. And it cost him the blood of his son. It cost him his life. Jesus purchased this church with his blood. And so the church belongs to him. That's why every Sunday I pray, God, help us to remember that this church does not belong to any one of us. But Jesus alone purchased it with the blood of Christ So help us to seek him above everything. So the church must submit to Christ's authority. And Christ's authority in the church appears in two ways. It appears through first and most importantly in his word. This church must submit in every way to this word. Handling it right. And following it correctly. Secondly, this authority, according to his word, has been delegated to the leadership, the pastors and deacons of the church. Hebrews 13, 17 and 1 Peter 5, 1 through 5 inform us of this. And so submitting to God's authority means submitting to the authority in the church. Secondly, we also see that not only must we submit to Christ's authority, we must unite around Christ's commands. He says that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. He says, I want all of you to agree, literally to speak the same things. This phrase in that day would have had political overtones of of warring factions Coming to a reconciliation. He says, I want all of you to be on the same side. United in order, in proper condition around the gospel. Of the same mind, thinking the same thing. This is principal thoughts, your purpose and intent. And of the same judgment. These are the actions, the outworking of that thinking. In chapter 2, verse 16, he's going to tell us that we have the mind of Christ. And it's that that will bring unity and restoration from divisions. One man says, conflict may not have resulted in the full breakup of the church, but it's marked by Paul as one of the sins that is characteristic of those who do not belong to Christ. We think of The characteristics we looked at several weeks ago in Romans chapter 1 of those whose mind has been darkened, who God has turned over to a reprobate mind. In Romans 1.29, he says what's true of those people is that they are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and maliciousness. So being of the same mind and the same judgment means that we unite around the word of God. And it also rules out fake unity. 
Unity must be genuine. We're not, we're not just simply uh, to speak the same thing while keeping our disagreements and objections to ourselves, making a pretense that we're getting along, but rather that we actually do. When it says unity that is not of the same mind and judgment is not true unity. Hypocrites will add to a congregation's size, but they will not take away, or, but they will take away from its effectiveness. Members who strongly disagree with his church leadership and policy, not to mention doctrine, cannot be happy or productive in his own Christian life or be of any positive service to the congregation. Again, in Romans chapter 12, Paul deals with this to the Roman church. He tells them, for, uh, verse 3, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of the faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. In Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, he tells us, Therefore remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to you who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In the second half of Philippians, Paul begins to warn the Philippians about those who were splitting the church and who sought uh, comfort and position and recognition above all else. So he begins chapter 3 by warning the Philippians about those who would hijack the church in arrogance. He presents his own superior qualifications. And then he says, they don't matter. In fact, they matter as much as human excrements. Because it's not about self, but about God's glory. So we humble ourselves and we unite around Christ, his commands, 
and his word. And then Paul concludes in Philippians 3, 15 and 16. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we've attained. If we are to avoid repeating history in this church, we must remember what binds us together. And it's not our reputation or our glory or our position or our thoughts. It's all about Christ and his word. Remember who binds the church together. The second step that we must take is we must not divide over tertiary people or issues. Tertiary meaning those things that are not primary, those things that are not vital. Verse 11 to 13. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos or I follow Cephas or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Now, we need to remember, this is Paul's actually second letter he has sent to the Corinthians. The first letter was not inspired scripture, uh, and so we don't have it. But after sending that first letter, Paul began to pay very close attention to what was going on in the church there in Corinth. At this point, he's probably either in Ephesus or back in Antioch. At some point, a group of people known as Chloe's people approach Paul and inform him of the fight taking place in Corinth. Now, Chloe was most likely a well-known businesswoman in the church based either in Ephesus or in Corinth who had these emissaries, these workers that would travel around conducting business for her. And these were the people that came to Paul when he saw them that he would have known and respected that informed him. There is quarreling in the church. Literally, there is this strife, this contention, this emotional flame that is taking place. In the church. And in response, Paul implores them to recognize two important aspects related to the conflict. First, he tells them, recognize that Christians tend to divide into camps. It just seems to happen because we are fallen people. Often these divisions are centered around particular individuals. They become leaders of the separate groups. People become the face of, of those groups. And this was no different in Corinth. We had apparently four different groups. He says, what I mean to say is that some of you say, I follow Paul. Or I follow Apollos. Or I follow Cephas. Or I follow Christ. Now he doesn't tell us exactly what that meant. What the exact issue they were following these men about. And I think that is obviously divinely given to us in this way so that we don't just identify that singular issue, but recognize we tend to divide into camps. And so they aligned themselves with these very popular people in that day, the prominent Christians of that day. And so you had one group that said, listen, I'm a follower of Paul, so you should listen to me. 
And you had another group that said, I am a follower of Apollos, this eloquent speaker. You should listen to me. And you had a group that said, I follow Cephas or Peter, so you should listen to me. And then you had the hyper-spiritual group. Oh, yeah, I follow Jesus. I don't know about you guys, I follow Jesus. And at first glance, that might look like that's a really good thing. We should follow Jesus, but they weren't actually following Jesus. They were using that as a super-spiritual way to say, I'm superior. What's fascinating is that each one of those individuals when we see this in Paul's response, would look at that and say, no, you don't. Stop it. Each group was divided up and demanding authority. This looks no different. This looks different today, but is no less deadly. And we have seen it across the American church and in our own church in several different ways. We think of just a handful of years ago. I am of masks. I am of no masks. That threaten to divide. I am of vaccines. I am of no jabbing. I am of Trump. I am never Trump. I am of essential oils. I am of no oils. I am of Norwex. I am of Windex. And we see these foolish things begin to divide because people begin to get their superior feelings. Don't they know the science? How can they be so stupid? Don't they know what the Bible says? I've read this passage. I'm taking way out of context. They should follow me. And we begin to divide over these various issues. It becomes so natural in the church. And so we cannot think that we are any different here at Cambria. We must remember and recognize that Christians tend to divide into camps. And the point is not to say that all of us should agree on whether we do or use one thing or the other, but rather, as Romans 14 tells us, that we encourage one another with love and in preference defer to one another. We must recognize that we divide into camps and these camps have the danger of grasping for power and influence in the church. They begin to think that I need to make sure people see me, that people think the way that I do it, use the things that I use and say the things that I say. And we get frustrated when people don't do it exactly how I would do it. But the problem with that is that when I do that, I am making this church about me. But I didn't purchase this church with my blood. And you didn't purchase this church with your blood. So your opinion and my opinion really doesn't matter. What matters is what God says. And when it is an area where God is not black and white, we must treat each other with respect and care and love and deference saying we may not agree in this, 
But because I love you, I'll submit to you in it. We must humble ourselves. Because secondly, we must recognize that these issues do not advance the church's disciple-making mission. In this passage, Paul does not only indicate that church splits need to be overcome, he argues logically that they are contrary to the gospel. Verse 13, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Paul doesn't argue about those people following Cephas or Apollos. Rather, he goes right to those who are saying, I am of Paul. And he's saying, no, you're not. Because it's not about me. He says, did I die for the church? No. He says, were you baptized in my name? No. He says, can Christ be divided? Can we, can we cut Christ up and split him around into these different groups? No, Christ is one. Again, these schisms were not schisms over heresy. Those are a different matter and are dealt with in other passages of Scripture. But most of the divisions in the modern churches are person-centered. A common statement when we go to pastor's conferences is you will divide a church faster by changing the carpet than by preaching heresy. And it's unfortunate. No, these are divisions in the modern church that are person-centered. We fail to submit to Scripture and the biblical authority in the church. They take issues that are not central and make them central. So, Don't divide over tertiary, unimportant people and issues. Instead, the third step we must take is keep the main thing, the main thing. This is verses 14 to 17. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you are baptized in my name. I baptized also the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And here again, he reminds us first, don't engage in frivolous decision. Excuse me, frivolous division. Don't engage in it. Paul states that he is happy he didn't baptize many of them. He says, I'm glad I baptized none of you. Now, this shows how Christ used human authors. He says, I didn't baptize any of you except these two guys. Then perhaps Sosthenes, as he's writing, dictating what Paul says, says, oh, hey, Paul, remember, you, you also baptized Stephanus. Oh, that's right. I baptized Stephanus. Okay, outside of that, I'm not sure, but I didn't baptize many of you. The point is, he's saying, I'm glad I didn't do that. Because apparently they believed that the more the pop, more popular the person was who baptized them, the more power and influence they should have in the church. And what he's saying is it doesn't matter. He's telling those who are saying, I am of Paul. He's saying, stop engaging in this stupid division. That's dumb. It's not the main thing. You're fighting in the barracks when there's a war outside. What are you doing? Stop engaging in that. 
And it's the same challenge for us. Stop engaging in frivolous division. Listen, if you want to use Windex or you want to use Norwex, who cares? Just clean. Right? If you think a lady can wear pants or you think a lady can wear skirts, whatever, show up. Stop engaging in foolish division. So what do you do when someone comes to you with this kind of divisive spirit? Can you believe what pastor said? Can you believe what that person did? Why can't they just get right with God? I mean, it's very clear. It's very obvious. They have a problem. So what do you do when someone comes to you like that? Let me give you three things. One. These are not on the slides, Ben, sorry. Don't engage. Just don't engage. Don't get involved. You know what? That's not a conversation I'm having. And walk away. It's amazing how quickly that division dies when no one will give it gas. Don't engage. If you must engage, then secondly, point them back to the authority of the church. The word of God and God's offices. Pastor and deacon. Point them back to that. Encourage them to submit themselves and humble themselves. And then finally, if needed, rebuke them. You know, you are displaying a divisive, arrogant spirit that does not please God. And I am begging you to repent. I'm begging you to humble yourself. Don't do this to yourself and the church. And if we would do that, we can avoid repeating history. Secondly, we see that we need not, we saw first that don't engage in frivolous decision, d- division. Secondly, we see don't get distracted from the mission of disciple making. So said, I think Satan wants us fighting in the barracks so we're not outside fighting the war. Don't get distracted from the mission of making disciples. Verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach. Now we might say, wait a minute, um, isn't the, the Great Commission where Jesus says, go into all the world and preach the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Didn't Jesus send Paul to baptize? That's not What he's saying here is, God did not send me to engage in these frivolous divisions. He sent me to engage in the mission of preaching the gospel. And he says, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of his power. He said, God did not commission me to engage in dividing the church over lesser matters. Paul, God did not commission Paul to gain a following for Paul. Paul, God commissioned Paul to gain a following for God. Through the preaching of the gospel. God did not save you so that you could have a prominent name in the church. God saved you so that Christ would have a prominent name in the church. Again, the problem is we are so arrogant, we think it's about us. We think church is about us and we begin to think that people need to say and do exactly what we think they need to say and do. 
But he tells us the gospel is not to be preached with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And many scholars agree here that Paul is speaking about Greek rhetoric. In other words, speakers in that day were prized and praised in the Greco-Roman world for the way they uh, had rhetorical brilliance. The more eloquent they were, the higher the position they should receive. And what Paul criticizes here is a focus on style instead of substance. Such that hearers were swayed by the artistry of the speaker rather than by what he actually said. The message of the cross. Today, this looks like worship style instead of worship substance. And too many Christians are more Uh, worried about walking out of church, feeling great about the music they might have participated in than about what it actually said. We're more concerned with feeling good than following truth. We measure the benefit of Sunday by how I feel when I walk out the door, and we measure our place in church by the influence that we have. When, we fo- when people focus on Christ, though, especially on what he has done for them in his death and resurrection and seek to follow him, then unity among God and his people results because we make it all about him, not about me. We have a mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ and declaring his glory to all people. That is the mission of this church to make disciples of Jesus Christ and declare his glory to all people. Our mission is not to advance a political agenda. Our mission is not to fill the seats by surrendering biblical worship. Our mission is not making sure everyone does things the way you think they should do them. Our mission is not making disciples of me or making disciples of you. Our mission is is making disciples of Jesus Christ and declaring his glory to all people. And so we must keep the main thing, the main thing. One man said, churches should be a place where people who have no other natural reason for associating with each other come together in love. But instead, it often remains the most segregated aspect of Western society today. Whatever benefits homogenous groupings have for certain kinds of outreach, a fully mature congregation should integrate people of different races, nationalities, socioeconomic standings, and societal status. But the reality is people are far more united around their favorite sports team or their favorite politician than they are around Christ. This ought not be the case. Over the last several years, we have made strides as we have sought to overcome a history of division. Yet to be honest, if I might speak for a moment to you as your pastor, there have been some signs in the last year that have concerned me. A small group has quietly and subtly started to make this church about them instead of about Christ. 
if we do not change, we are in danger of repeating history. But if we unite around the gospel and God's sovereign control of all things, we can see God accomplish some amazing things in this county through this church. But we must remember who binds this church together. And it's not you or me. We must stop dividing over unimportant issues. Stop standing in arrogance over things that really don't matter. And keep the main thing the main thing. So what must we do? For so what's for you today? Number one, humble yourself and don't make this church about you. This church is not about you. It's all about Christ. So humble yourself. Number two, humbly submit to Christ's authority. The authority of his word and the authority of his offices. Submit to what the word of God says and submit to the pastors and deacons of the church and trust God's sovereign control in and through them. Number three, don't engage in division. When it arises, shut it down. Don't even play that game. As I said before, don't engage. Point them to the authority and if needed, rebuke. Finally, most importantly, proclaim, live out, and rejoice in the gospel. God's kingdom is so much greater than anything we could ever imagine. And we get to participate in it. So let's unite around that and proclaim the gospel and live it out joyfully and watch it work in our community for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for hard texts like this. It is not enjoyable to preach this. And yet I rest in your sovereignty that it is what we need. And so, Lord, I ask that you would work in every one of our hearts and work in my heart. To help us to humble ourselves and not make the church about us, but make it all about you. That you might receive all the praise and the honor and the glory for all eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.